всем добрым вечером. Hello everyone, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever is your place on the globe. Welcome to Touch New Weekly, the show that gets behind the headlines to discuss the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. We broadcast every Sunday at 18 UTC, please follow the main accounts on Twitter for more information about other projects. A recording of this broadcast, as well as other spaces, of course, and all our content, basically, can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and a variety of other podcast platforms. Basically, any RSS aggregators you have available on the web, you can find us there. For example, our Italian and German friends have at disposal some special touching talks held in their native language, discussing the war and its implications on our countries. We have a great broadcast day. First, we will go through an essay by Ben, our economist, highlighting for us our Russian economist status is and its capabilities and what might be its future developments. Then, of course, our beloved military segment held by John will go deep into Ukrainian standoff capabilities and new contracts for advanced medium-range air-to-air missiles. Finally, Ireland and 1-2 will give us an update on the overall Ukrainian offensive, cities of art, and the latest developments on the field. Now, before starting with our broadcast, I would just like to add on a personal note. I would like to spend a few words to remember a friend of Toshny, Samuel Newey. Samuel was a, was a friend to, to many of us, someone who some of the members of, of Toshny have collaborated with along the time. He was killed on the line of duty just a couple of days back in eastern Ukraine. He joined the armed forces of Ukraine one year ago when he had just turned 21. I am sure and convinced that his sacrifice will not be forgotten nor it will be useless and his courage and strength will live forever in the hearts of those who had a chance to know him. I just wanted to spend this very few words to to remember Samuel. Hopefully we will make him proud. So after this beginning Uh, let's start with our economic segment, shall we? Now, thanks to Ben, we have, who has made an analysis of the, the Russian capabilities and the Russian economy during the state of war. So the first question that we want to answer is, what is total war in an economic set setting? Of course, a country can never devote 100% of its economic output to, to fighting a war. Of course, there are some side outputs that need to always be produced. In practice, if you spend anything north of 20% of your GDP on prosecuting the conflict, you're probably safely in total war territory, so 20%. Often the numbers given are massive underestimates of the reality, 
as, for instance, putting millions of young men in uniform stands to convert the large part of countries' effective output to war aims. But the share of the economy is hard to tell. Typically, it is underestimated when it is not just forgotten altogether. Back in 2022, the Russian Federation's budget represented 20% of its GDP, and about 30% was devoted more or less directly to fighting the war. So Russia was clearly not waging aid of the war. Prospective budget numbers published last February showed that in 2023, Russia was still not jumping in total war territory. As a point of reference, Ukrainian spending, including foreign support, well over half of its budget and 20% of its GDP in defending its people and its territory. So what is happening? Clearly, the Kremlin is uncomfortable with asking too much sacrifice from the Russian population and would rather spend only the absolute minimum necessary to prosecute the war in Ukraine. Not to fall in hero worship, but as early as during the 18th, 1940, Winston Churchill, great man, was telling the British nation that the time for was for total, unmitigated effort towards victory. And even Nazi Germany openly announced that it was engaged in a total earthquake. Forgive me for my German pronunciation. Putin regimes is holding on to the appearance of normalcy. It would make precious little sense to go all in in such a despised, mediocre adversary as Ukraine. So, officially, the supreme efforts, no abnegation, no privation. Putin will simply not announce total war, nor indeed is he even likely to covertly take the decision to move into total war. Putin aspired to a simple decision without much cost or consequences. Does it mean that Russia is not going to shift gear and move to a total war footing? Well, fortunately not. Actually, basic mathematics are mechanically pushing Russia towards total war. To understand this, let's give a look at the situation over the past few months, shall we? At a macro level, the narrative has been dominated by two big issues inflation and slow crumbling of the rubble. Combined these two factors are making the size of the military industrial complex even larger in relation with the economy as a whole. Remember last month, the rubble slid fast and breached for a while the symbolic war rubble for one dollar cent line. On the short term, this was really good news for the Russian state. Its income from the sale of dollar-denominated goods such as oil increases automatically. Better even, the exporters added benefits implying bigger taxes from Moscow. However, for regular non-commodity companies, on the other hand, it's an unmitigated catastrophe. In particular, anything that has to be imported from abroad is fast becoming more expensive and as a result impacting their bottom line. Worse, in a normal country, a collapse of the local currency would imply massive export opportunity, since local products would suddenly have become more affordable. But Russian companies just don't export. Back in 21, the value of non-commodity exports was a paltry 15%. So while everyone is hurt, only a small number of companies benefit from the new situation. The Russian entrepreneur's nightmares is only starting. To combat the slide of the rubble on the international currency market, the Central Bank of Russia summoned an important meeting on August the 16th and announced 
that it would hike the May rate from 7.5% to 8.5%, and finally 12%. The main consequences of this decision is to increase the price of borrowing money, not for everyone. The military-industrial complex does not depend on bank loans, obviously. It gets its money directly uh, from the state, and any borrowing is government-supported. Other companies, on the other hand, are not that lucky. Normal companies want to borrow, but the rates are prohibitive. So in many cases, Russian companies are hit by a triple whammy. Imported inputs are more expensive. The diminution of demand due to inflation is not compensated by foreign extra demand, and borrowing for trade or investment is becoming expensive. No wonder, in these circumstances, that many Russian companies are declaring bankruptcy, or at the very least, high pessimism in financial difficulties. From the point of view of labor, an increasing number of workers are leaving the non-commodity and non-military industrial sectors for precisely the latter. So just like in total war, one sector, the one related to the war effort, is becoming bloated, while the other one is even more limited. Well, that's where the danger lies. The Russian government is not going to announce officially that it is moving into a total war footing. It may not even take the decision consciously at all, but the Russian economy may still end up devoting 20% of more of its output to prosecuting the war. From the point of view of Ukraine and its supporters, this is a perilous situation because there will always be those arguing that Russia is not yet fighting the war for real. This may both deter support to Ukraine's own war effort and create a new pessimism as people think Russia may get real soon. So that's the takeaway. Treat Russia as if it was already on the way to a total war posture, even if they don't say so, even if they don't realize it themselves. Don't get fooled by their creeping strategy. They're getting all in and must be handled as such. So thank you, Ben, for this fantastic analysis. Without any further delay, I will turn it over to John for the beginning on, of our military segment. So, John, please, I'll hand it over to you. Uh, thank you, Pierre. So today there were three major points that I wanted to go over to varying extents. So probably in terms of munitions and procurement, the two major news items of the past week have been the issuance of a USAI, Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative, contract to Raytheon to provide AMRAAM uh, air-to-air missiles to Ukraine, as well as the announcement that a number of AIM-9M air-to-air missiles would be provided as part of the most recent PDA, Presidential Drawdown Authority package from the United States. Both of these have some interesting implications. To to start with the AIM-9, the Sidewinder, for those who are unfamiliar with it, it is a infrared-guided short-range air-to-air missile. It's the standard infrared-guided air-to-air missile in service with the United States, both the Air Force and the U.S. Navy, as well as a whole host of countries around the globe, including uh, most uh, NATO member states. So it is, it is a rather plentiful missile, to put it mildly. Currently, what is what is so interesting about this drawdown is that Ukraine does not have any systems, at least out of the box, without modification, that can make use of the AIM-9M as is. Um, this was also true for the delivery of AIM-9Ls, uh, which is a slightly earlier model 
of the Sidewinder that they received from Canada back in May. So either these are being delivered in advance of them receiving their F-16s, which is uh, an entirely you know feasible possibility, or it could be an indicator that some sort of unexpected integration of the Ang-9 has been performed. There's been a lot of discussion about nascents in particular, and I'd like to correct a fairly common misconception. NASAMS-3 does have the ability to, to launch Sidewinder, but only a specific version of it, uh, specifically the AIM-9X Block 2, which is the most recent version of Sidewinder, which Ukraine is, has not received, and it is not known they will receive that in the future. Uh, NASAMS leverages uh, the AIM-9X Block 2's lock-on after-launch capability, which means that the missile seeker doesn't actually have to physically observe the target prior to it being released from the rail or to be able to make it workable with that canister launcher. So it leverages inertial navigation and data link, basically. That capability is absent on all prior Sidewinders, so it's lock-on before launch, meaning the missile's infrared seeker has to be needs to have a direct line of sight to the target and be able to physically see it and acquire it before launch. So that likely means that NASAMS is out. Um, what I suspect, if they're going to be put to immediate use, the two most likely possibilities are that there is some undisclosed Frankenstein SAM creation, like the Book C Sparrow integration, there's, that they've done something else like that with Sidewinder. That's obviously a distinct possibility. We haven't seen any you know, evidence of that in open sources, but that possibility can't be discounted. What I personally, anyways, think is the more interesting possibility here is the integration of Sidewinder with Ukrainian MiG-29s and Su-27s, which is actually, I think it would turn out to be a much easier process than I think people suspect it would be. So for those who are unfamiliar with the history of Soviet air-to-air -air missiles, kind of a historical basis for most of their major developments in infrared-guided air-to-air missiles was the R-3, also known as, I believe, the RK-13, which was also known as the AA-2 Atoll NATO reporting name. That is a reverse-engineered copy of the A-9B Sidewinder, the, the second version of the Sidewinder that was introduced in the U.S. service. That is already integrated on those SU-27s, those MiG-29s, so... More or less, um, they already mostly have a Sidewinder copy integrated as is. And I'd also add that previously, I believe the Egyptians integrated the AIM-9P, one of the later Sidewinder variants, with a number of their MiG-21 NFs. And the similarities between the RK-13 and the Sidewinder are such that you can quite literally launch a Sidewinder from a RK-13 rail, so in that sense an integration between that missile and those aircraft should be fairly trivial to perform, all things considered. Such an integration would make sense particularly if they're having difficulty sourcing additional R-73s, which is the, the Soviet standard infrared-guided air-to-air missile that they have been using up until this point. If their inventory is heavily depleted of those, and they're having difficulty acquiring external sources, then such an integration would make sense as an interim stopgap capability to prevent any sort of inventory short, uh, shortfall in the interim. 
before, you know, as we get later down the line, you know, coming years or so, as the F-16s will begin to replace the, the MiG-29s and the Su-27s. Uh, yes, sir, please go ahead. Yeah, so to the sidewinder, I have a question because I read at least some speculation that they could be outfitting some of their trainer aircraft, uh, namely the L-39, also with the Sidewinder. Do you think that is possible in order to basically have more airframes capable of flying armed missions? Or or do you think it's uh, out of the question? So they did fly some combat sorties with the L-39s, I believe, in a limited ground attack cap- uh, capacity. At the very beginning of the invasion, there were some losses recorded as a result of that. The specific L-39 version that Ukraine operates only has, I believe, a single hard point. So it could carry potentially a single AIM-9. As to whether or not, as to the feasibility of that specific integration, I don't know enough about the, the L-39 to comment on that. I don't know off the top of my head if the L-39 has been previously integrated with, say, the RK-13. If it has, then I don't see why not, if that was an avenue they wanted to pursue. If they, you know, needed additional airframes to perform a def- to perform defensive counter-air missions, presumably against the, the Russian one-way attack UAVs, the Shahads, obviously, that is something they could look at. But again, I don't, I'm not familiar enough with the, with the specifics of the L-39 airframe to, to assess how feasible that integration would be. So the second topic I wanted to address was, as I mentioned earlier, the contract that Raytheon received to provide AMRAMs, AM-120 AMRAMs to Ukraine. The contract has a completion date of, I believe, November 2024. Uh, it's a indefinite quantity, indefinite, or excuse me, an indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contract. I believe for, I don't remember the dollar value of the contract off the top of my head, I'm sure. Uh, $192 million. Okay. Uh, so that will probably get 100, 150 AMRAMs or so, depending. And in terms of what AMRAM variants they would be receiving, the only two that are in production, as far as I'm aware, are the C8, the Charlie 8, and the D3, the Delta 3, the Delta 3 being uh, the most recent. The wording of the contract, at least in the, or I should say, the wording of the DoD press release was interesting. It didn't make reference to a specific variant, but it said that Raytheon was going to procure, quote, fielded AMRAMs from a variety of sources. So that makes me think that potentially in addition to new production missiles, the U.S. government may have contracted Raytheon to go out and buy existing AMRAMs from existing operators. That is an interesting possibility. Um, It could result result in them receiving a more diverse range of AMRAM variants, but if they're receiving new production missiles, those would be either the C-8 or the D-3. My gut instinct would be that they're probably going to receive the C-8 because I'm a little bit skeptical that Ukraine would get um, export clearance for the D-3. Um, we haven't cleared that many people for it yet, the Five Eyes and a couple other NATO members, but given that it is our most recent air-to-air missile, in active service uh, until the the AIM-260 comes online next year or so, we have been exercising some pretty heavy export controls uh, on on the foreign sales of it. And presumably this will be for the F-16s that Ukraine will be operating in the coming months as well as their current inventory of NASAM systems, 
currently they have two of those nice M's batteries online and I believe you know over the next year or so that number should climb significantly they have an additional 14 on order through a combination of mostly USAI um, procured by the US government one system that was procured by the Canadian government I'm not through I'm not sure through what mechanism and then one that Ukraine purchased itself via a foreign military sale. So as that number climbs, they will need an increasingly large sustainment pipeline to keep those batteries uh, supplied with AMRAMs. So that would explain, I guess, to some extent, why Raytheon would be specifically asked to procure AMRAMs for existing operators. If there's concern about the ability of the existing production lines to deliver sufficient missiles to meet projected demand. Uh, go ahead, Colby. Yeah, on the NASAMs, by now I would expect that there should be a third battery in Ukraine. You know, the Ukrainians haven't spoken about that, but you know, that's a kind of an OPSEC thing. You wouldn't want the Russians to know exactly how many are there, but by now, based on sort of estimating the production rate based on when the United States said that the deliveries would be concluded, I would expect that there should be a there should be three there now with a fourth in the pipeline so that's the the first two were they announced two to start with and then that was followed by six and then obviously john said there's a lot more now that are coming through uh various different means so they have they should have at least one of the first out of those six that were announced last august and that was contracted out at the very end of november that contract also included AMRAMs is part of it. It wasn't just the systems, it was the AMRAMs as well. So this isn't actually the the first contract that Ukraine issued for Ukraine to get new built AMRAMs. So I don't know when we would expect to first see any C8s in theater, but they have been contracted since last November. An order would have been placed with Raytheon to build both the, the NASAMs launchers and the radars and everything else and new built C8s. Thank you, Colby. And the other thing I want to add to that is, so previously Ukraine has received AIM-120Bs specifically for their NASAMs. The origin of them is not exactly clear. There was discussion based upon certain materials that they might have been procured from South Korea somehow, but the the origin of those isn't really well established. But they did receive older AIM-120s for those first two AMRAM batteries. Hopefully, they will get some more recent variants as part of these contracts. AMRAM went some, underwent some pretty dramatic range extensions throughout the development of these various variants. So that should improve the performance of their NASANs across the board um, to get the later Charlie series and possibly even, you know, maybe a couple of the, the D series. As to AMRAMs on Ukrainian F-16s, there has been a lot of not really helpful discussion about this. It has not been helped by the Ukrainian Air Force themselves who have been putting out really, really bad and incorrect statements about this. Even if they get the the D, the the D three or the Charlie eight and the you know, if they get a missile with the full hundred sixty kilometer range, their F sixteens will not be able to make use of that full envelope because their radars are not capable of detecting and providing target quality radar tracks at 160 kilometers to enable a successful engagement. That's just not in the cards. The F-16, Block 10, Block 15, and Block 20 MLUs they'll be receiving 
they have a marginally upgraded version of the original APG-66 radar that uh, shipped with the very first F-16s. It is old. Its range is not is really severely mismatched with the range of the modern AMRAM variants. On a good day, they could probably expect to pull out pull off maybe a 100 kilometer ish engagement successfully. The VK, VKS fixed wing assets with the R77-1, um, they will still be able to outrange the F-16s and especially the the Su-35. Uh, S's with the R-37 as well as the, the MiG-31s also with the R-37s. They will all be able to outrange the F-16s both in terms of sensors and effectors. So I, I, people need to kind of have a, a come down, a come to Jesus moment, if you will, about this, that Ukraine is not going to be able to leverage the full capabilities of AMRAM just due to these sensor limitations. That said, there is some wiggle room once you start looking at the fact that AMRAM has a data link capability to some extent, varies depending on whether or not you're working with a Charlie series or a Delta series, as well as potentially data linking aircraft with other offboard sensors. You can maybe play around with that 100 kilometers a bit. To what extent they'll be able to do that in practice, I don't know, mainly because I don't have a good sense of, in terms of the F-16s they'll be receiving, I... In terms of the onboard software, I don't know whether or not those F-16s have the ability to take essentially radar tracks for targets uploaded or, you know, data linked from offboard sensors and actually act upon them in the way that, say, the later F-16s can, typically speaking, if they could take, say, a target track from E3 Sentry AWACS or ground-based radar and then, you know, launch an AMRAM based upon that track. I don't know if those the NLUs can do that or not. That might be something that's, if they can't, that might be something that's workable without too much difficulty. Via some software upgrades, I, I think it's almost inevitable the Ukrainians will get some non-standard uh, uh, software modifications, particularly if we start looking at, you know, non-standard F-16 munition integrations, like, say, slam ER, like what the Turks did with their F-16s and uh, having that integration done. And there's a variety of other things that the Ukrainians could potentially do in terms of, you know, various different uh, types of, you know, munitions and other capabilities aren't typically mounted on F-16s. So that could be in the cards, but I, I don't know enough about the specific software version that's run by the NLUs to comment on that. Go ahead, Colby. Yeah, just, just building on that, you know, even assuming that Technically speaking, it was feasible to be integrating these F-16s with ground-based radars, for example, because a lot of people have been making this suggestion. We need to keep in mind that Ukraine has a limited quantity of longer-range Western ground-based radars like the Sentinel or the, the German one, the TRDL, is it? TRML-4D. Uh, thank you. That, that one uh, for the Iris-T which is the, I think that's the best one that they have the most capable. They have limited quantities of these, and these radars are deployed in conjunction with their, their launchers that are defending Ukrainian cities and other important assets like air bases in western Ukraine, mostly. There's not a lot of these systems that we've seen active on the front line. So as a practical matter, those radars are not where they would need to be in order to see over the you know, the front line to give 
the the F-16 a better radar picture of what's happening so that they could take take advantage of the the full potential range of these of these AMRAMs. So you know, people that are making that suggestion, I, I don't think that's really realistic given the quantity of radars that we have provided for them. And again, even something like the Sentinel, which is what they're using for the NASAMs, even that is not the greatest in terms of its its effective detection range. You know, it's it's you'd want something more powerful and the new radars for NASAMs are not yet in serial production, so they're stuck using, you know, good but still somewhat older systems here. So really, you know, Germany would need to be providing a lot more of those uh those radars in in order for them to be able to push some forward so that they could uh, use them to counter Russian aviation on the front line. The other thing I would add, and then I'll, I'll go to exit, is that kind of the, the foundation for all of this is that Ukraine would have access to Link 16 and other NATO standard data link capabilities. As far as I'm aware, and I do truly hope I'm wrong about this, but as far as I'm aware, we have not given them access to Link 16 as of yet. I don't, I'm not familiar with the other data links and whether or not we've given them access to them, but as to Link 16 specifically, I don't believe that they have been able to make use of it thus far, at least in the standard, you know, radio frequency implementation of it. Actually, please go ahead. So in the last two weeks, we've seen a lot of reports of Ukraine using TB2s in various different scenarios is there a chance that they could use those as a data link for targeting somewhere and with the system so in terms of amram specifically uh no because the tb2s don't have an onboard radar system they have a laser designator that can provide terminal guidance for the the mam c and the mam l guided munitions laser guided munitions that the tb2s carry organically and I believe they can also provide laser designation for the, what is it, the TRLG-230, the 230-millimeter rockets or missiles, I should say, that Turkey provided midway or early spring last year. Uh, I'm not sure if the laser designator conforms to the relevant NATO standardization agreement for laser designators. I'm going to have to go do some digging to try and figure that out. So it could provide designation to potentially a variety of laser-guided ordnance, but not for AMRAM. That requires, you know, actual radar-based sensor to tap that work. I was told it does meet NATO's laser designator stand egg, although I haven't validated them myself. But somebody in Turkey who seemed to be in the note told me that it did. Gotcha. I mean, that's going to be difficult to verify because I'm pretty sure did the specifics of that stand egg are either export controlled or just outright classified. And then the final thing I wanted to touch on today that has gotten a fair bit of discussion over the past couple of days, especially since the the raid against uh, the Russian airbase in Skals that damaged and destroyed a number of Russian IL-76 airlifters, uh, that is Ukrainian standoff capabilities. So Danilov, Alexei Danilov, the Secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council, was making some big statements yesterday that Ukraine can prosecute targets up 1,500 kilometers away from Ukraine's borders, etc., um, and made references, vague, unhelpful references to their um, UAV and missile programs. And so I wanted to just kind of provide, I guess, a refresher summary of Ukraine's major missile programs. So 
they currently have three major um, long-range missile programs that are in various stages of development or production. Um, the first, and I'm sure the, the one that we're all most familiar with, is Neptune, which is an anti-ship missile with a secondary land attack capability, ranks about 300, 400 kilometers, 150, gram, 150 kilogram payload. It appears that Neptune was likely the munition used in the recent raid against the uh, that S-400 battery on the western coast of Crimea that resulted in a substantial portion of that battery being destroyed or otherwise rendered inoperable. There, I believe the war zone put out an article described based upon some anonymous Ukrainian official describing various modifications that were made to Neptune to enable this land attack capability. They included um, increasing the range from 300 to 400 kilometers, increasing the payload mass from 150 to 350 kilograms, and adding infrared, what I think is infrared desmac, which is more or less infrared terrain feature matching terminal guidance to it. That has been circulating quite substantially. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, based upon my own understanding of Neptune's design, I think that essentially that entire description is probably completely false. Neptune, based upon reporting from a variety of Ukrainian defense outlets prior to the invasion, Neptune always had GPS or GNSS to be more general, uh, Global Navigation Satellite System Guidance. It had waypoint capability. The hardware for a land attack capability always existed on Neptune as far as I'm aware. My understanding is that all they needed to do was make some software tweaks to be able to uh, implement that practically. But in terms of hardware, it always had this capability. I suspect that it was just not used presumably due to low availability uh, arising from a small inventory of, the, of these missiles, uh, especially once you take into the fact that they will need to maintain a fairly sizable fraction of them at any given time to be able to continue to deny the Western Black Sea to the Russian Black Sea fleet. Uh, D.B. Luch, the producer of them, has indicated that the production line survived the initial strikes uh, in the spring during the initial weeks of the invasion. And production of the missile has continued. My, I guess, informed speculation would be that the production rate for them is probably not all that large, just based upon the fact that we've only seen probably one confirmed Neptune land strike, so they asked 401, and that's about it. If they had a substantial production volume of these, they only need so many to deter the Black Sea Fleet, especially considering the Black Sea Fleet isn't really making that many incursions. Uh, into the Western Black Sea, you know, 18 months into the invasion, we would be seeing a lot more frequent use of these in the land attack mode if they had a substantial production line for them. So my guess is that the, the rate is probably still fairly low at this point. Uh, moving beyond Neptune, probably their second most well-known project is Sapsen, also known as Krim-2 uh, or Grom. That is a short-range aeroballistic missile system. Think of it basically as analogous to Atakum's or the Russian Iskander M-9 uh, and 7-2-3 to be specific. The Krim-2 is the export version, uh, capped at 300-kilometer range. The actual, the full system itself for Ukrainian domestic use is called Sapsen, uh, with a published range, or claimed range of 500 kilometers. As far as we're aware, it has not entered operational service yet. It was partway through the development pipeline prior to the invasion, project had more or less stalled out for a couple years prior to that due to a lack of funding. Funding was supposed to be resumed in 2022. 
and it seems the development of that project is ongoing. Um, some reporting from Ukrainska Pravda indicated that it was supposed to be operationally deployed three months ago in May of 2023. That obviously has not happened, so it's pretty clear there have been some very serious delays to the implementation of that program. So there isn't really a clear sense of when it would be available or in, you know, it would be available in meaningful quantity. Uh, the other system, oh, I should also add, there's a 480 kilogram warhead, so pretty substantial. I believe it just takes its warhead directly from Toshkau, more or less. And then finally, the last project is Korshun, which is a ground-launched land attack cruise missile. This is by far the least mature of the three, I believe. It was mostly really a concept design um, prior to the invasion. Open source information about that project since the invasion began is non-existent, as far as I've been able to tell. My understanding is that it is an active development project, but again, the open source information on it is quite literally non-existent. Nobody has said anything about it publicly since the invasion began. I suspect is probably setting aside the fact that it's the least technically mature. In the long term, I suspect it's by far the most promising system of the three, simply because um, the form factor combined with its uh, power plant, the MS-400, which is more or less a clone of the R95-300, which is the turbofan from the KH-55, the Soviet standard air launch cruise missile, Although it had an advertised range of 500 kilometers when it was presented to the public, I think, in 2020, with a fuel tank extension with that power plant, you could easily hit 1,500, 2,000 kilometer plus range with it. The Cage 55 can do it with the essentially identical propulsion system, so there's no reason that you couldn't do that with Korshun. That is less feasible with Neptune due to limitations of the existing transporter reactor launcher it uses. Now, I believe Sapson, the indication was that its range could only be extended out to around probably a thousand kilometers. So in terms of very long range strike, in terms of like an actual strategic um, fires capability, Korshun's are really the only option there. And part of the reason why I mentioned this is, again, I, I, Danilov made the statement that Ukraine can prosecute targets up to 1500 kilometers. I suspect that currently that's probably not true because again, only one of the on, only one of these projects is known to have produced an operational project, Neptune, or excuse me, an operational product, Neptune. And the furthest that we've seen um, UAV raids has been about 600 to 700 kilometers. Obviously, obviously, it's possible it could have produced a 1500 kilometer range UAV and not told anybody. But thus far, we haven't actually seen them prosecute targets at that range. And in terms of delivering significant payload at that range, I mean, in the best case scenario, we're talking UAV can maybe deliver 20, 30 kilogram payload, which is, I mean, acceptable for certain soft targets, but against anything more substantial, you need something like an actual ballistic missile or an actual cruise missile. Thank you, John. If there are no more questions, we can, I think we can proceed with Ireland and one to two who will talk us through the actual situation on the ground. So please, Ireland, come up. Thank you, Pierre, and thank you, John. Amazing uh, insights. Some of these very complicated systems that I don't understand. So I have one to two with me. I'm very happy to have uh, you know Scandinavian 
neighbor with me talking about different things happening at the front lines. So welcome, one to two. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to start off by yeah asking you what is the status basically on the Western-provided armored vehicles after three months of, of so-called summer offensive. A lot of different vehicles were delivered to Ukraine um, in the spring and has been committed. And we have seen basically uh, some losses and, and some damaged vehicles. Some of them have been able to be repaired. Others maybe not so not, not in the best shape for a, a repair. And yeah, what is the status right right now? So first off, I would like to just say that everything we say or much of what we'll say is based on very limited information that is either easy to confirm or not so easy to confirm. So uh, anything we say now is sort of speculative. So everybody just knows this. That in general, it seems like I have seen a lot of information that uh, around something like 15 to 20 percent of the Bradleys that were supplied are out of commission due to completely destroyed or in a such a state that they cannot be operated. So that is a yeah, that's a like a shift if it's you know the upper limiter and uh, but they still then have four fifths operational, which should be fine. And you have to keep in mind specifically the Bradleys have done their job; they have protected the crews, uh, which is really important. As far as I know, a, a lot of these cases, they protected crews. Maybe in some cases they didn't entirely, but in general, they did, which is uh, splendid. The CV-90s, uh, from what we know, maybe one or two destroyed, and so they seem to be faring off quite good. Then again, we don't know about the the rest. And, you know, in general, with the Leopards, they're, th th this is hard to say how many, but... Uh, it's um, there's still a substantial amounts that should be available for service, and we've seen some pictures of them, you know, gathering at locations, performing some training, and in just in that spot you can see quite a few. So it seems like they are still faring quite good. And you want, might want to add all these pictures you saw. Yes, the, a lot of vehicles they were badly damaged, but the, some of them were not actually you know, too damaged to be repaired. It will take time and all that, but it's still functional. So I think you could say that the Western vehicles are, or have fared quite well, uh, despite the situation where, you know, we have no real breakthrough. And, you know, the beginning where it was when the Russians uh, like to paint it off as a victory, you know, or outside Robitne. But they, I, I think they've fared off quite well and they have done their job protecting their crews. And, and I think we're seeing quite a difference in the Western tanks there to compare to uh, the Soviet standard. That's what I've been able to gather on the Western vehicles. Yeah, thank you. And exactly, uh, well, basically a couple of weeks, three weeks after this, these images of bugged down Bradleys and Leopards came up. We also got videos of Ukrainian vehicles, engineering vehicles, pulling out some of these and back into probably maintenance to depots. And would you say some something about the importance of these Bergpanzer and different vehicles that Ukraine got uh, before the offensive? Oh, they're, they're absolutely crucial to any successful force uh, that, that you know could be operating it's not just that they were pulling up um, damaged tanks you can have tanks that you know you make mistakes when you're driving them or you're getting situations where you get stuck 
where it's like re- you can get out of it on your own, then you basically need these kind of tanks that has, has enough um, torque, you know, drag cop capabilities, everything to get you out of this situation. Uh, so they're really crucial in making sure that you can utilize your force and that you can get your um, damage material out of the situation and get them back into the fight uh, as soon as possible. So they are really crucial to any capable force. Yeah. So we had, we, we talked about this, uh, one to two, and uh, Ukraine has been committed to a, a difficult style of offensive. Of course, we saw those uh, shocking to some images in the first week, but it's switched uh, in a radical way, but the pressure has been still uh, very high towards those same axes, especially towards uh, Robotine and uh, and in the Velikano-Vasilka axis. And you have seen a pattern there. Uh, and I wonder why Ukraine has been committing so hard when they obviously have been taking casualties, heavy casualties in these offensive maneuvers. But that must be to some good reason because they are committed very, very thoroughly to this sort of uh, feel, uh, this sort of strategy of operations, so to say. Yes, and again, very speculative uh, reasoning here by me, but it, it seems like when Ukraine has found something with the Russians that if, if you keep a pressure on them and you manage to get your, you know, um, your foot inside the door somewhat, the Russians will commit to defend that position. Then Ukraine gets a slight, you know, opening and they, you know, take a certain positions. The Russian will then counterattack. And that's the thing. You want to get the Russians out of their positions into the open or sort of into the open and, you know, and make, try to make, try to make them perform certain maneuvers, which they are probably not so comfortable with doing, maybe due to, um, inexperienced troops, maybe due to uh, poor communication equipment or anything. But when if you get them to move and try and counterattack you, it will be much easier to take them out. And if you keep the pressure up and they keep throwing uh, troops into these positions, like uh, when Ukraine, you know, got into robot unit and they kept counterattacking, it will be much easier to thin out the Russian lines and just keep holding that place. And when the Russians don't have troops to counterattack with, you, you keep solidifying your positions that you have gained, and you then try to build your next bridgehead uh, into the next village, and you you rinse and repeat that pattern. You take you go for that village, you hold the against the counterattacks, and then you will thin out the next line, and you keep doing this, even though it will take a long while. I think it's a um, it's a method that will work in the long run, even though it's tripping and Ukraine to a certain extent as well. But we have seen the Russians, they are quite capable in defensive uh, postures. And defensive postures are easy when you don't have to move. So yeah, I think that's what Ukraine needs there or is trying to do is, is you know, is to make the Russians feel like they need to move and act in some extent and then you can more easily inflict heavy damage and casualties on them. Uh, it, it, it's it, what it seems like because you have uh, Robertina and then you have the uh, other axis with Stanlundgat over there. It, it's, it was basically the same pattern. You take a village, you wait for the counterattack, you wait and then it, it fades off, then you go for the next village and you rinse and repeat 
Um, so so far, it seems like a reoccurring pattern. Yeah, um, it was probably more evident uh, in the Velika Novasilka axis south south of Velika Novasilka, where basically there's this thread of villages which fell in the same manner every time, and 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 you described it very well. Uh, it took quite a lot more time and pressure towards uh, Robotine, but what you're saying or speculating is that you think Ukraine is going to keep on doing that and maybe have some more more advances also in the Robotina axis? Maybe. Yeah, you, you're not sure if they're going to switch up the tactics and go for something else. If they've maybe deemed that they have achieved a certain objective, you know, thinning out the Russian lines enough or, or something like that. We... Uh, I've read a lot of reports, you know, about, you know, Russians having a certain tactic when they're using a frontline troop room, uh, what's it called, pool, so to speak, and then they have the second pool, and now that they have committed the second pool that were their backline units, there's nothing, there were very little less than the other positions, which will make it eventually easier, sort of like they're committing troops to these positions, like because these positions are probably the ones that they have invested most time in, and they're most uh, fortified uh, and hopefully uh, the the positions behind will be less you know completed and all that and just for this Robotina axis you have to remember there's nothing in between where the Ukrainians are coming from and this village uh, in the other axis of it was much easier once you get into the first town it's easy to be there and jump to the next town because the distances between town to town was not that hard. It was more a open on the flanks. Here you have uh, had uh, Verbove and Kopani on the sides, uh, you know, providing cover. So it's been it's been really tough for them to open up this axis. But I think it's really crucial for Ukraine to keep the pressure on this axis and not let off the pressure here. So they've successfully entered Robotina and is also continuing to pressure uh, in the southern parts there, but. The last week, they made quite a substantial or important uh, breakthrough towards Verbove, which is uh, not towards Tokmak, which everyone is talking about, but to the east, the direction of Robotina. And that's basically where they encountered their first uh, of these very infamous defensive lines that the Russians also posted a lot of pictures and drone images of. What do you think is going to happen with the Russian defenses when when the Ukrainians actually manage to get through those two lines towards Verbove, uh, if they manage? Yeah, and this, this is very hard to say, but it probably will be causing a lot of panic in the Russian lines because then once you get in, if you get into Verbove and then you get in there, it, it, Ukraine can choose a number of ways on how to proceed from there. And they will be inside the Russian defensive lines, which will make it very hard for the Russians because then you have to coordinate their second line to know what they're shooting at. So it's not the Russian first line. It's going to cause a lot of panic, probably. And it's really hard. So the Russians have to decide, are they going to stay in the first line or are they going to retreat back to the second line? If they leave the, leave the first line, Ukraine is going to get a lot of ground. And, you know, it's going to be a whole new to problems to the Russians. And, and the reason I think they might be going out to Verbova is because once they co- took control of Robotina, uh, they need to expand their flanks a bit because, you know, driving a wedge down there is dangerous. You need to widen your flanks so you can 
push even further with the wedge, so to speak. So I, I think it, they might have, you know, detected something in the line near Barbova that it might, you know, there might be a weakness there. So it, it will be really crucial to get in behind the lines, and I think they can move much more freely once they do. Yeah, and we have talked earlier here on Tochny about uh, what sort of defense the, the Russians committed to, um, and it seems like they committed to very strongly to this zone defense where they absolutely do not want to give up any um, defensive positions. They commit to defending all of them uh, rather than retreating and relocating and, and digging in uh, in new defensive positions. And do you think this is a weakness for the Russians that the Ukrainians are trying as hard as they can to exploit? And if so, do you think it is an, to an advantage for Ukraine that they committed to this? Yeah, I, I think so, because as I said, it's it's hard to uh, maneuver and fight effectively if you're not, you know, well trained together. Then it's very hard to attack and coordinate this. Um, even, you know, for experienced people, you know, it, it might be hard sometimes to do certain tasks as assault and all that. So it will be much easier for Ukraine if the Russians are the ones that's moving and pushing into them rather than the other way around. And once, as I said, what the Russians push or thrust is, you know, that sort of, you know, movement fades off, they then the Ukrainians can move again. It's sort of like an ebb and flow. It goes back and forth a bit, but Ukraine just needs to make sure that when the ebb goes back, then they leap out and then they get a new sort of like beach position. So when the flow comes back, the water doesn't go back as high. Uh, it's really hard, but yeah, I think it's to the adva- advantage for Ukraine if the Russians commit troops this way that they have done so far. And to another point on, on this axis uh, in, Robotina, uh, in the Robotina area, uh, in the beginning we saw a lot of Ukrainian vehicles stuck in the middle of the fields, either hitting a mine or hit by artillery. Uh, it seemed like the mines were a very, very big problem, but Recently, I haven't seen a lot of videos of Ukrainian vehicles hindered because of mines in this area. And mm. um, do you think something happened either technologically or was it tactically? I think it's a combination of both. We saw, you know, these pictures of the drones using thermal, I think, to detect, you know, when the mines have heated up during the day. Uh, it was easier for Ukraine to identify a lot of positions or minefields. Uh, and probably through certain other tactics, they have, you know, managed to bypass or detect, you know, minefields and, you know, maybe revise some of their maneuvers and utilizations of other equipment. So I think it's a very combined effort, not just one or two things. It's a, you know, um, a whole range of things that have taken place, uh, basically. And we don't. We have no idea how the Russians fought uh, when they mined. Did they mine every field, or did they just carry the mine certain fields because they were afraid that they wouldn't be able to maneuver? It's very hard to say. But yeah, it's, I think it's a range of things that we won't know until you know for a long while. Yeah. Do you have any final thoughts on this area of combat, this southern axis, before we move to the other zones? And I see Ben had his hand up. I, I think a lot of people might have underestimated the, 
this tactic and think it's a it might have been I think people have might have seen, seen this as undeliberately slow I am starting to lean that it's somewhat deliberately slow in some aspect so I'm 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 leaning not so more to I'm leaning more towards that Ukraine has done something deliberately while a lot of western people have been frustrated with a lot of things I think I'm starting to see some patterns emerge now I might be wrong I might be incorrect but yeah I, I see it's very effective in some in some ways for them Ben please go ahead thank you over the past week basically 10 days uh, something has changed in the statistics that are given uh, by the ZSU about uh, Russian uh, forces losses and it has to do with the losses of fuel trucks and uh, trucks in general so the rear uh, of the front uh, they've absolutely exploded five out of the ten worst days in these categories for the Russians have happened have occurred over the past week and the records of most uh, vehicles lost has been broken just today well no yesterday so the question I have for you is is this related to the current fighting or and does is it designed for this or is it something completely different well I'll, I'll just at least generally comment that Ukraine has at least made it public that they have extended their FPV drone strike capability and I think some of it has to do with this another thing is that I also notice is that in general Ukraine is at least publishing or letting their their soldiers and units publish more uh, successful strikes if that is a change in the media strategy or if it's actually just a, a very large increase in these strikes it's very hard to say but it is definitely deliberately if you notice such a big uh, increase in, in uh, destroyed vehicles it could mean that they're trying to make things very difficult for the Russians ahead of the winter or the, the autumn in general it's going to be more difficult to bring in fuel logistics etc in the winter and if you lose a lot of your trucks then it's going to be even more difficult so I'm thinking it is a tactical move at this and also that they, they have some to some extent a change in their capabilities there's been a lot of focus on these FPV drones yeah and remember when you, Ukraine starts to put pressure in one specific area they will consume a lot of resources but the Russians will consume a lot and probably more to some extent resources in defending that point because you're going to require massive amounts of ammunition and fuel just to hold that specific area when you're getting pushed and that might mean they need to increase or get the trucks more closer to the you know dangerous areas which mean they will get more into range of certain systems like an FPV drone or such and as I said in general when when you create some the need for the enemy to move and to expose themselves it will be much easier to identify targets than for example if they were just sitting in certain positions in tree lines and just sitting there and the, as you can probably see a lot of the movies from FPV drones are when the Russian BMPs or such are on the move so it, it might be a combination of all of them yeah absolutely and I want to add that if Ukraine has you know drastically increased their FPV drone capabilities in the front line that will mitigate 
some of the threats and that they need uh, operationally to take out any anyway and alleviate pressure from some of the other systems that are more traditional like the you know uh, normal 155 artillery or VMLRS strike capabilities which have r longer range which will then enable Ukraine to utilize more of those munitions in the you know further back in the in the lines because they will probably operationally they will need to anyways take out a lot of these logistics closer to the front line to be able to conduct their operations okay i guess we can move a little bit more east because at least one thing that happened uh the last week that i i see as quite uh, significant is that uh, Ukrainian forces finally managed to to cross this rail line that is south of Andrivka. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about Ukraine needing or wanting to take this position, and Russian the, the Russians have been defending this rail line fear, you know ferociously for weeks. What do you think? Uh, wanted to uh, do you think this is a, a sign that Ukraine is going to push even further toward Bakhmut, or is it? to try to 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 shift Russia's focus uh, it, for me i've always seen uh, what to be sort of like a holding a fixing operation for ukraine uh, because you know obvious reasons the russians have a lot of manpower and resources there and as they ukraine has stated they control all the ins and outs with you know at least firing range of their artillery making it really hard for them to leave uh, the city so I see it. It's really hard, tactically, ben or tactically beneficial to actually try and push more than they have, if unless they feel that they can and you know that it's possibility. Because it, if they can manage to get around and probably trap a lot of Russians inside a city and probably make them surrender, that will free up a lot of resources. So it could be, uh, yeah, it could be an attempt to at least probe and see where they might be able to push next because they they did a push they took a lot of a lot of ground then it comes the phase where they solidify their gains and you know fortify and wait for the russian action and the russian action came and and uh, you know they have been from themselves at trying to uh, you know retake Luzhivka and all that so maybe now that has faded and ukraine's feel that they can start probing and maybe move out again it, it's really hard to tell what their next move is and that's good because it should be if we can keep guessing yeah probably the russians can keep keep guessing so i i see it a little bit in comparison with uh, this operational tactic that ukraine has been employing in the south where arriving to andrivka and getting over the rail line was very very difficult because of a lot of open fields where the russians basically had the advantage but ukraine has done it and of course, this rail line is a natural advantage point uh, that could be exploited. And of course, further uh, north, you're coming very close to Bakhmut itself. I'm guessing that, as you said, this could lure the Russians in. But what could happen if Ukraine actually pushes there is, well, uh, it is, of course, interesting in to regards how much Russia has committed to to take Bakhmut, and uh, I think it's interesting because the Ukrainians have definitely committed to take this 
trade line. I wanted to ask you as well about something that has happened that is not so significant, but in also in the east. So uh, the Swedish uh, supply brigade has been operating north of this area. And recently there was a news about some of the CV-90s being transferred to a different brigade, most notably the 93rd Assault Brigade, which is quite infamous. What do you think is the play here? And do you think there is any specific reason for why they did this? So as I, as I have understood that the brigade is quite, you know, offensive. And they maybe, for me, the CV-90s didn't come to their full use in the specific area they were deployed, mainly because the few different factors. But the CV-90 is an excellent assault vehicle, especially due to the capability that you can uh, you can have, partially because of firepower in itself, of course, but also the ability to open the hatches in the vehicle so you can stand up troops inside the vehicle and they can fire out from the vehicle. So it's an ideal assault vehicle. So you can get really close to trench lines, and even sometimes you don't need to dismount the soldiers, depending on the situation, of course. And for assaulting trenches, the CV-90 is a really excellent vehicle because you have the programmable shells and with it, meaning that you can set a certain setting to it, and when you fire it, it will detonate above the trench, and everything inside that trench will be basically Swiss cheese, um, it's highly effective uh, against sort of, you know, trenches or if you have a wall, you can shoot above the wall and kill everything behind the wall. So that makes it ideal to maybe combat, you know, the Russian fortification lines. Uh, and I see it will be probably quite useful in certain other areas where Ukraine, Ukraine might want to push uh, soon or in the near future. Uh, to context, the, the 93rd has been using the M113 with the M2 Browning machine gun on top as their, you know, uh, top of the notch in their brigade armored vehicle with some other Humvees and other uh, support vehicles and other Russian-produced or Soviet-produced uh, BMPs, etc. And they've been fairly successful uh, in many of their their attacks on, on trench lines and fortifications, so... I would assume that they're redistributing, redistributing some of the resources in order to maybe enhance some of the more successful units with better tools and to see what the effect that can have. Would, would you say that the, this Swedish brigade has been not as successful as a concept as people uh, were predicting? Yeah, that's really hard because it's one of those if, buts, and maybe questions, and you don't have a lot of information what you know on how it's been used, and you know a lot of tactical decisions. So it's really hard to answer that question. But yes, I was hoping that it would have been used in a different manner than it seemed to have been used. I'm just gonna say that I think we have not seen a. a uh, the capability of that brigade used to its full extent, but it's really hard, you know, uh, obviously without a lot of background information to say what it might be coming down to, but I think it's an excellent move maybe to re redistribute these uh, resources, especially that is a unit that's been effective despite not might, maybe not having the best vehicles, and now they will have a vehicle with a 40mm cannon and 
more protection, more speed, more mobility. I, I hopefully that will make them, you know, double their deadliness, so to speak, or effectiveness. Oli, go ahead. Yeah, thank you, and then, um, thank you for really good um, content and uh, everything you are doing. Thank you. Good work. I actually had a um, question to Echivutvol regarding to um, the Orihi-Poloi direction. And uh, I don't know if this is a good time to ask. For me, it's for me, it's fine. It depends on what Erdogan wants. <laughs> yeah, so I think mainly we've been discussing in, at least in uh, Twitter spaces, about what the Ukrainians are going to do next and how they are proceeding and so forth. But um, in my opinion, it would be interesting also to maybe play a little bit devil's advocate uh, what the Ruskies can do in the uh, Tokmak direction of south of Orihi or Polohi. So the, uh, I think within one or two weeks, the situation, in my humble opinion, is going to be so that they only have maybe 40 or 50 kilometers wide area. They have no real staging areas uh, in that direction, and they have the sea in their back. So how will this affect their operations, and what can they essentially do there? And what should they do in order to... Uh, and I say, defend this narrow area. This is my question. Thank you. So, uh, just to be clear, did, what did you did you refer to what the Russians can do to defend it? Or... Yeah, yeah, it's like um, what they should do. Uh, I think we we don't have any, <laughs> we don't have a wide confidence on on take capability. Um, but I'm just just thinking about what what are the um key key things they should realize to do, or else they will be run to the sea so in my humble opinion it, it, i think it's a really uh it's a really hard spot for the russians because if they give up if they were to sort of use a uh, or use the study that ukraine used at the beginning of the war where they gave ground to you know solidify positions further behind to concentrate forces if they do that ukraine will take this advantage get new positions and get closer and probably get more systems into range of their logistical centers and all that and i think this because you know the sea is not that far off so if you get a bit down south they will be able to reach you know Berdyansk and all that and there's a lot of other things with high mars and all uh, different systems that might be also one of the reasons why they are committing a lot of troops to holding the first line because they know if they lose that line ukraine will be one more you know um step closer to getting a lot more other things in range and Tokmak is uh, if you disregard the military ball is a was probably a good staging area where you know since it's a crossroad or a logistical hub I don't think it might be the same type of you know staging area anymore because now it's in range of a lot of systems for Ukraine it's not a safe use anymore for that purpose if you look at the map there's not really a lot of other places where they have large roads that maybe can hold a lot of transportation. You have a um, it's Smirnova, it's, uh, sort of like southeast of Polio, Polui, that is a large uh, area too. Uh, it's really hard to say what they... I think they're just going to throw a lot of people in trying holding this as long as can. Maybe if they can get, you know, 
more troops or rather manpower from other, you know, mobilization efforts and all that, it's really hard to know what they're going to do because I think it might be come down to how desperate they are, how much panic there is, and actually what kind of resources they can redeploy from somewhere else. It, but if I were them, I would reconsider consolidate my forces, but it's really hard because I don't think they have the space to be able to do it. Thank you. Thank you. It's a good one. I hope it answered the question. It's really hard to, <laughs> about a lot, you know, having a lot of more information on or exact information on how the situation is. It's really hard with no information coming out, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was a good answer. Yep. I was just um, also pondering because the Ruski forces, they are, they are not that good in combined warfare mm. or operating in small units and oper operating independently. That's mm. not what they are good at. <laughs> they are not good at it. So that's, those are yeah, the odd teams. They're not even good at communicating if you look at things. There have been quite a few incidents where they had a lot of blue on blue, blue on blue fire. And, you know, they seem to get easily, like, you know, trigger happy and fire different positions. And they don't really have a good bird's eye view of what's going on. In some areas, of course, they do. But, you know, there's been quite serious incidents where they lack communication and coordination, even when in defensive positions. So I think that's going to be a real problem for them when and if Ukraine really gets inside those lines and, you know, start really breaking up things and you have Russians abandoning positions left, right and center. doesn't mean everything will break at once, but it will create a, even more difficulties for them to organize the defense. Of course, another point to that is that the Russians are so committed to this zone defense that they prefer instead of establishing new defense lines they they pour in new people to defend their 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 object, objectives and having a lot of new people around doesn't necessarily make that communication part easier because of course you you are easily it's more easy to coordinate and, and collaborate with people that you have been uh, dealing with for the last few months in your positions than a total new brigade uh, or battalion coming in and helping you. So I agree with one two two. I think that this is going to be uh, one of the the difficulties that the Russians will, will will face. I also do think that the Russians have been committing to this zone defense because of the, the this risk of the the sea wall, basically, uh, as you mentioned, that they have the sea in the back and. And if the Ukrainians will manage to get far enough down there, then everyone knows what happens with the communication lines and the, 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 the logistics. I don't necessarily think that they chose the, the right way of defense because it, it's not, it, you don't really have a lot of options afterwards when you're committed so heavily to this. And yeah, but at the same time, as one two mentions, that the Russians are not seemingly very good when they have to move around and are better when they when they stay put in their positions. So uh, I assume that's why. Thank you. I will step down. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Paul. And it's a good segue to the next topic, which I wanted to ask uh, you about one to two. So what's going to happen now? Well, how long do you think Ukraine can keep up this summer offensive, sort of say, pressure? And what is it dependent on? Is it dependent on the weather mostly, or is it dependent on the logistics? 
or the availability to send in new troops and brigades that haven't been committed yet. Everyone knows about this uh, this, this famous Rasputitsa mud, and there's already some some videos of Ukrainians struggling in, in the mud further north. But uh, is this the main obstacle, or is are there ways to to keep the pressure going even if the, the weather turns? So as I see it, I, I, the mud is going to be huge, as always. It's a real pain for them. Logistically, and when you're fighting, it limits your capabilities and what you can and cannot do, what type of equipment you can deploy to certain areas in certain operations. However, I think what's going to what is going to come down to the most is how many brigades the Ukraine still have that are fresh, that are ready to be committed, and maybe ready to rotate out other units that are fighting and that 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 are putting the pressure on the Russians, because that's essentially what it comes down to: how much manpower can you keep pushing with until they need to be get out of there. If Ukraine can keep cycling brigades into, you know, these certain areas and spots, I think it's a real possibility that they can keep up the pressure and achieve some objectives and take some things, even despite with the mud, because it's it's hard for infantry as well with the mud, of course, to move, but it's still doable. And there are a few, if you just look at the map now, for example, the distances are not that huge between a lot of these villagers, if you call Robotina, and then you go down there. It could be doable. We know the Ukrainians actually have used a lot of infantry during nights to get past minefields for taking out the minefields. So if you coordinate that with artillery and you get, you know, probably and hopefully a lot of more munitions into certain areas, you could theoretically keep pushing, keep the pressure on the Russians with this type of warfare. So for me, the the question is how many brigades do they have and how many brigades can they keep rotating in and out? Yeah, and as you said earlier, they closed this gap with, with the use of armored vehicles in the early phase, do you think that's also some part of the uh, of the operation operational planning that they 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 had to close these big fields and gaps before the bad weather sets in, so that they are in a more advantageous position regarding close, basically closer range engagement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so, and it might have been one of the reasons besides Robotina being very important defensively for the Russians that they, they needed to get their foot in that settlement and they needed to take control of it because it's a staging settlement for continuing a bit down and also if you do that and take control of those settlements you'll be able to control Tokmak entirely more or less without being inside Tokmak of course it's, I think it's really important for Ukraine in this phase to get inside the Russian fortification lines and get a foothold. And from there, they are probably and hopefully more flexible and, you know, jumping out on the Russians, even though the mud season comes, hopefully. We'll see, but that's what I hope. Okay, so next topic I have before we end this uh, part of the military segment uh, uh, is something that we talked about uh, offline here, and it was... The increase, the apparent increase of uh, more classical special operation operations, some in the the Dnipro area and south of Kherson, but more notably, some very very 
large and important uh, operations on the western coastline of Crimea. This is, well, in Ukraine there's been a lot of talk about special operation forces, but this is more what I uh, look at as real special operation forces operating in the classical way. And it's also in interesting to see this happening very closely after the announcement of uh, Ukrainian forces being trained by the special boat service in the UK. What are your thoughts on this, Wontaji? Yeah, and it, it, to me it seemed like, yeah, finally is the wrong word, but we're starting to see more specific uh, special forces operations, or at least those kind of operations that we know of, to uh, that they're using you know special capabilities such amphibious operations and this to me indicates that you know they're probably changing style or have been trained differently now to operate and it, it it it's a really crucial tool to open up new possibilities for the other parts of your army and also to make the russian army weaker and also to make the russian army again react and force movement and as I said to you yesterday, it, you have to keep in mind, Crimea is sort of like, that's the, um, they have their, in the western parts of Crimea, that's the Russian back because they're sort of facing um, Ukraine towards Saporizhia, where they're pushing, sort of like they have turning a bit, if you're pointing their focus. So that's their, it's not their unguarded back, but it's, you know, they're still their back line. So it's, it will be a typical target for a special operations force to get in there and cause a lot of pain uh, for them. And it will probably and hopefully make them react and commit, you know, resources that they could have used in Saporizhia. Yeah, and I also think it's very interesting that Ukraine has been basically teasing this uh, for weeks and then with videos as well of, of, of Ukrainian special operators uh, in sort of Zodiac boat at beaches in Crimea and then a couple of weeks later very high value targets blow up in the air and seemingly uh, this was the result of one of those operations and if you look at what kind of targets they went for uh, it's really also very special forces targets uh, I think we can actually say that the first target was the training facility in uh, the western parts of um, Crimea or Kherson on that, you know, uh, sort of like peninsula. They killed a lot of, you know, manpower there. Uh, w and when you do that, it's easier for you as a special operations force to operate in that area because the enemy will not have as much density or po possibility to commit manpower as well in that area. And then you take out a air system and then you take it out a radar, which allows you to commit a lot of other resources that can support your other special operation forces. So it really seemed like, you know, a logical chain of targets uh, for a special operations force as well. And yeah, uh, as we talked about this yesterday, uh, you, you kind of drew some lines in between armored uh, combat and, and this. Could you uh, please uh, repeat that analogy? Because I think it was uh, a very good one. I'm not sure exactly which analogy I was. Which well, one so was. you were talking about this strategy of of kind of poking the enemy uh, ah. and 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 moving backwards, you know, going back mm -hmm. in reverse with your tank and 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 yeah. trying again until you find a solution. Mm -hmm. 
So what we used to do is that we used to come out of the tree line and poke the enemy to see what would stick, so to say. You know, you you had a plan. You come out, you come out with a force. You sh- you're, you you shoot at the enemy. You see, do they respond? What do they respond with? And then you go back into your tree line again. And you keep doing this back and forth movement, and eventually, some part of that you know line or spot will stop responding. Or, you know, have a weak response. And then, you know, oh, there's something going on here. And then you maneuver and you facilitate a much stronger and united force. And then you go for that spot. But you don't, you, once you, you find that response, you don't keep doing it. You keep doing it for quite a while. And eventually, uh, you will find that gap and you punch real hard at that spot. So it, it also creates a, the end, it also fatigues the enemy because they're stuck in their position and they're constantly reacting, uh, which is um, really, really bad. You want to have the initiative and want to be the one acting. And as you mentioned, that they took down some facilities uh, that will, in the presence of them, it's harder to do special operations or landings movement in this area. And as they've taken them out, it enhances their ability to to land again in these shores. Um, do you think we will see uh, larger operations, or do you think maybe we won't see them, but they will happen uh, as a result of this, or do you think this is uh, this is it uh, for now? Uh, it's really really hard to say, but I would be very surprised to see if Ukraine would commit a what a lot of people talked about in. I mean real amphibious landings. I don't think we will see that, you know, with regular troops. Probably and possibly we will see a lot more special forces operations and, you know, maybe finding and attacking specific targets. But it's very hard to see them still being able to get huge amounts of personnel in because that would require also a real logistical challenge. So... I hopefully they start or they continue to use their special operation forces in this manner and find suitable targets. And it's not to sound negative, but it's also in the interest of special forces to know when not to poke the bear anymore, so to speak, uh, because eventually the bear will, you know, have its own trap. So you, you want to maybe switch places where you conduct operations as well. What I also think is kind of important for Ukraine here is that they have access to their their partisans in, in Crimea. I think that Ukraine has developed quite extensive network of partisans in Crimea, but of course they're limited being inside the enemy lines and having some sort of access physically uh, would be very necessary if you if you want to, to supply them with either technological devices or even weapons and, and explosives. So these kind of operations is, you know, an indication that Ukraine is keeping some sort of link towards Crimea as well. And I, I assume that if we see things going up in the air, they've, they've been present many times before that as well. So and, and also, as we discussed, you know, drones, they're terrific tools to, you know, find targets and all that. But it's always, and we saw this also in the war, that you will you want eyes on the ground as well for several reasons to, you know, confirm targets or to give other type of information that you cannot get from a drone. 
there, which are really crucial as well. So that you will only get, for example, if you have Parkinson's and they're able to relate that information to you, or if you actually have some kind of special operations capability on the ground telling for example, near the, if you have this, you know, Neptune strikes or alleged Neptune strike, you need to get the target beta there, and pay, probably that's hard if you the enemy has air defense and all that. That's really is going to be really important for Ukraine also to utilize special operations forces in other areas in the war to actually scout and prepare terrain for suitable use of equipment, as we also discussed. Uh, drones, as I said, they're terrific. But they're not eyes on the ground. They're not the two eyes watching a horizontal plane. Yeah, and it, um, and I um, what was I think also um, it was it was it not um, one of the rumors that that was also discussed at the meeting with Solushny, uh, or give me if I said his name wrong. He had with you know uh, two generals uh, at the border as well that they recommended using a lot more, uh, it, you know, special operations or infantry to get recon and identify or find avenues of attack rather than relying on drones heavily. I might be incorrect, but I think I saw an article about this topic. Don, do you have anything to that? Uh, not that specifically. Well, I also want to comment on the fact that, yeah, uh, having uh, infantry recon on, on the ground in combination with drones, which is an amazing capability that we have seen it is very important, especially when the weather changes. And yes, you need people to actually see how how the ground is as well before you commit to sending in the whole brigade of armored vehicles. It, it, that's just not possible with a with a drone, both for the autumn coming and the, and the winter. This will be uh, more important than it is right now, but it is still important anyway. And I think Ukraine has always had this capability and used it. It's just maybe not as visible as these drones. And maybe we have had the wrong impression of Ukraine utilizing uh, recon forces on the ground. I, I, I think they, they know what they're doing in this uh, field. And I, I think we should let the Ukrainians, uh, you know, understand and, and, and maneuver in their, in their own field. I, I'm a little bit skeptical towards, you know, Western comments about that but uh it's also not and really known what those kind of critiques were or if there were just some encouragements gone uh thank you erland before we uh finish out uh today's episode i wanted to reference some rather breaking news that uh was just released about 20 minutes or so ago president Zelensky has announced that uh, alexei reznikov who has been the grand minister of defense since the beginning of the invasion well since before the uh, the invasion in February of last year, he has now been removed from his position, and uh, Rustem Umirov will be appointed as the next Minister of Defense of Ukraine, um, pending uh, the endorsement from the, the Verkhovna Rada of that appointment. Do you have any insights to why this happened, and could it have something to do with you know, certain changes happening in the UK recently as well? Uh, to be blunt about it, I I strongly suspect that this is the result of the many, many corruption scandals that have occurred at the MOD um, while or during Reznikov's tenure, um, particularly Reznikov's reaction to them, which was not fantastic, to put it mildly. He does not have a particularly positive relationship with the Ukrainian media sphere, 
and um, their attempts to conduct investigative reporting into corruption in Ukraine's public sector and government, specifically in the MOD. Um, I'm sure we are all familiar with the procurement scandal related to the procurement of various food products, such as eggs, early this year, which at the time resulted uh, provoked rumors that he would be sacked at some point in the spring. That ended up materializing. More recently, there has been another scandal involving the MOD paying inflated prices, procuring sub optimal or subpar winter jackets from a Turkish uh, company, I believe at like a 200% markup or something along those lines. Again, his response to the to the media investigations of uh, that scandal were not particularly positive, so I suspect that directly led to him being replaced in that position. Well, thank you for the insights, and uh, I want to say thank you to 122 for joining us tonight. That's it for the military segment. Over to Pierre. Thank you, Erland. And thank you to everyone who joined us today, to our panelists and to those who just came by to ask a question or to make a statement. Thanks to all of you. To our live audience, Michael Bond is hosting a space after hours. Feel free to join in and to follow his content. Is a uh, one of my favorite broadcasters on uh, on Twitter. Just I leave it there, just on a personal note. Thank you, everyone, for listening to Touchney Weekly. We broadcast every day at 800 UTC. Please tune in live or check out the podcast on the platform of your choice, uh, where we upload all our content. And follow the main account for announcements and updates on future projects and interviews. Again, thank you to to all our panelists our appreciated guests, all our listeners for tuning in. We usually end up our spaces, our broadcast with Arslava Ukraini and I want to dedicate this one to Samuel who was killed in the line of duty just uh, just some days ago. Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava. On behalf of the brave.